Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. There's no weedsier aspect of American public policy than the details of the tax code. There are a lot of ideas from congressional Democrats about how to improve the tax code, and of course, ideas from Republicans as well. I was really excited to sit down with Meg Weehy, the deputy director of the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, to help understand what changes have been made recently and what may be coming if progressives get a chance to sort of have their way in Washington. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm joined today by Meg Weehy. She is the Deputy Director of the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. We want to talk about taxation and economic policy. So it's a good, it's like, it's it's a really good match. Um, she's, she's one of the, the authors of a, of a new report, which is great, that looks at five different sort of major proposals that Democrats have going on tax credits. And, and I want to, you know, understand what those are, how they how they work. But to start, I think it's it's helpful to understand the, the context. We had a major tax cut bill. Uh, these are Democrats talking about Tax cuts of, of some kind or another. I remember, I remember that tax bill. It was now I can do my taxes on a postcard, and also it was gonna put what was it like four hundred dollars, four thousand dollars, four thousand dollars, four thousand dollars in every worker's pocket. So, <laughs> so that's that's great. We just all got four thousand um, dollars. So quite. Why, why do we need more? Right. The 2017 tax law, right, called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I may refer to it as the Trump and GOP tax law. The tax scam, whatever you may want to call it. Tick-ja, I mean, it was if you're, if you're cool. Yeah, tick job. I've never heard that one before. That's, All right, I'm going to have to start using the, that. All right. The, the Thank you. Journalist. Thanks for that. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> I mean, it was a far-reaching, um, you know, far-reaching tax overhaul, right? I I would not call it true comprehensive tax reform. Um and but but it was it was sort of sold on many promises, right? There was a promise that it was going to have a major boost to the economy. There were promises that the bill would pay for itself, right? Yes. A, a 1.9 trillion dollar tax bill over the course of 10 years, then of course some of it's temporary, some of it's permanent. You know, there was a belief by many Republican lawmakers and and the Trump administration that it would pay for itself. I it just saw Kevin be, Brady say it's not going to pay for itself. He just said, he just conceded the fact yesterday <laughs> that it's not going to pay for itself. Oops. So there you go. And there's, you know, other research out. The Congressional Research Service came out with a report. It's not paying for itself, right? 
Um, so that was a promise, as you said. Another big promise um, during the debate was that um, this sort of supply, you know, what we, you know, the supply side theory, right, that the Republicans always sort of lead with, um, that doing these big tax cuts for corporations, the rich, would mean that workers would get $4,000 in their pockets. That didn't happen. So this was a tax bill, the the bulk of the benefits, uh, you know, I'm eyeballing it. It, it looks like 80 to 90 percent wind up going to the richest 20 percent of people and to foreign investors. And that's because this was a tax cut really aimed at businesses, right? right? So, so that's who owns businesses. Right. It was a tax cut aimed at helping profitable corporations, shareholders, both those who live in this country and those who don't. Um, and the the richest, really the richest one percent. But as you said, you know, about uh, of the benefits that went to people living in this country, roughly a little over seventy percent went to the top twenty percent. You mentioned the foreign investors part. Foreign investors, you know, those who own stock in this country, got a bigger tax cut in aggregate than the bottom sixty percent of taxpayers in this country. So every taxpayer, every household in this country making seventy thousand dollars or less. In the aggregate, got less than we gave away to foreign investors. Right. So, so that's telling us because a, a, a huge amount of the money here is going to business owners. Exactly. And some foreign people own American businesses. Poor Americans do not own American businesses. So foreigners get a bigger tax cut. That's right. Right. That's absolutely right. And 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 I mean, there's you know, there's a theory to this. I I will get a right winger in here sometime to explain it properly. <laughs> but you know, I mean, so but the the idea is that when you cut taxes on businesses, that's going to create investment, all, all kinds of wonderful secondary effects, right? But the the primary impact is a sort of windfall for shareholders of public and private exactly. companies. Right? Exactly. And what we saw last year was a record amount of stock buybacks happening. We saw a record amounts of um, CEO compensation and bonus packages. What we didn't see was a record amount of new jobs, you know, new jobs created just because of the tax act. I mean, there were, there were new jobs created, but many of those corporations said they were already in the, the pipeline. They had nothing to do with the um, with the tax law. Um, and we certainly didn't see that promised wage boost, that $4,000 mm-hmm. Um, did not deliver. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at sort of, you know, economic growth stuff, the economy grew, but it grew the year before. It grew the year before. And I think too often some of our lawmakers measure the economy by the stock market. Mm-hmm. That's not how families in this country, that's not how low and moderate middle income families are measuring the economy. They're thinking about how it impacts their daily lives. They're not watching the stock market, right? They're watching their bottom, their bottom line. And the fact of the matter is, for for many families in this country, economic insecurity is is a real problem. Right, and I mean, I, I remember having read statistics on this. I mean, it's like the bottom half of the income distribution doesn't own any stock, right? At well, all, barely, right? Exactly. Right, and and you know, so it's it's very very concentrated. Even though it's prominent in the media, I mean, it's sort of fun. Uh, they run the stock market every day, so you can always have a story about it. It's important. On some level, but it doesn't like impact the typical person. No, no, it, it enriches and enriches shareholders who again tend to be at the upper end of the the income distribution. Right. Okay. We're looking now at, at, at sort of five different democratic plans. These are plans with tax credits. Um, there's a sense in which they are tax cuts. TCGA was a tax cut. Um, there's differences between them, but but philosophically, I, I was in with taxes. Right. There's like two kinds of things that people worry about about taxes, right? There's the like 
conservative economist who has a complicated concern about incentives and economic growth. And then there's, I think, like a normal person's concern, which is that with higher taxes, you have less money. Uh, with lower taxes, you have more money. And the Republican Party, you, it just doesn't give very much money to people who don't have much money. And these Democratic plans are aimed in a sort of more banal way at look at people at the bottom 20, 40, 60 percent of the income distribution and and give them more money. Right. I mean, all of them are a completely different way or different approach to how we could use the tax code as an effective tool to deliver on the promises that were made under the by Republicans and by the Trump administration under the 2017 tax law. They would actually deliver cash straight into the pockets um, of people and families across the country, right? They would have a positive economic impact. The, the families who would benefit, the people who would benefit from any of these proposals aren't going to use the money to, you know, buy back stock, mm -hmm. right? They're going <laughs> to use the money to, to buy groceries, to buy clothes, um, improve their housing situation um, for transportation to um, pay off medical bills, right? They're going to put that money straight back in the economy, and it'll have a real, you know, immediate impact on on their lives and helping them make ends meet. Okay, so let me ask a really simple question: What is a tax credit? Because these are <laughs> you you they, the chart calls these new tax credit proposals. So, like, what what is that? Well, there are a couple of ways to think about it. I mean, all of these proposals, very importantly, are refundable. Not all tax credits are. But so if you if you start, the basic way to think about it is once you've walked yourself through the tax code, mm -hmm. um, gone through all of the, the deductions and the adjustments, come up with your taxable income, you apply it to the rates and brackets, you're left with your tax liability, how much you owe. And the credits always then come afterwards. Now okay. that we've, we've found you owe $2,000, then we apply um, credits that would further reduce that tax liability. Um, it's a much more targeted, I think, effective way um, to, to reach um, to reach low and moderate income households, but only if they're refundable. And that's okay. that's the trick. Well, so right? first, let me so, so you have deductions versus credits, right? So right. a deduction is I'm doing my TurboTax and I'm saying, okay, I get to deduct my, um, I don't know, my, um, my, my home mortgage interest. And so that comes off the top of my income. Right. Which then reduces my taxes. But how much it reduces my taxes has to do with what rate I'm paying. Right? Exactly. So exactly. it's like, so if you're rich and you're paying in a high bracket, the value of a deduction is really, really high. Exactly. But if you're in a low bracket, it's low. Exactly. Right? And, you know, one of the changes with, so, so, you, it's possible, you know, most people in this country actually aren't deducting if their homeowners sure. aren't deducting their mortgage interest anymore because one of the big changes in the tax law was to, um, you know, significantly increase okay, the size you, of the standard deduction. I'm not, I'm not itemizing anymore. <laughs> okay. I know. I mean, most people aren't, right? I think only like 9% are left itemizing um, because of lots of changes. I mean, again— it, the, the tax law had lots of lots of moving parts. It increased the standard deduction, but it also got rid of personal exemptions. So now we have this big deduction that most people are taking that's that's a by filing status, whether mm -hmm. you're household or um, a single household or married. Um, but we removed the the deduction or exemption that, if you will, that was sort of based on on family size. So on the surface, the new twenty four thousand four hundred dollars standard deduction seems big, but not when you take in consideration that we removed a little over four thousand dollars per person. You were also able to to deduct before. Right. Um, but so a credit just sort of comes in at the end. Credit so comes so in at like the end. So it's like I owe whatever, and then I get a credit, so I just strike it out. So it's equally valuable no matter what bracket you're in. Except 
then we get into the refundability. The refundability, yes. Because some people, a fairly large number of people, don't owe any income tax. They don't owe any income. You have a $24,400 standard deduction, right? I mean, that's – so anyone with income, if you're – that's for a married household with income of that amount or less won't, you know, won't owe. So the refundability really matters. I mean, particularly if, if the interest is to use the tax code as the tool, as the delivery mechanism into which to boost the incomes of low and moderate income families – if you don't make the credit refundable, then you're not helping anyone, right? right? They're not getting the benefit. Um, so refundable simply means if I mean, one example would be if your if your tax liability is a thousand dollars after you've walked through the deductions and um, adjustments and the the brackets and rates, um, but the value of your earned income tax credit is three thousand dollars, you would get um, a check for two thousand dollars. So the so the difference so it would offset. And you know originally one of the original reasons why the earned income tax credit was created was to you know offset the regressive impact of payroll taxes, but also as an as a as an income boost. Right. So here, I I bet Weeds listeners know this, but you know maybe if you don't, let, let me. I find it confusing because people think that if you, you know, pay tax on buying cigarettes, that's a cigarette tax. If you pay tax based on your income, that's your income tax. But actually, there's income tax and there's a payroll tax, which for people of modest means are very, very similar, right, in their in their structure, right? If you earn all your money out of wages— it's all like the same tax. It's it, all the same tax. It's it, one flat tax. Right. And it doesn't apply to anyone to earnings above, I believe, this year around $137,000. Right. So if you're rich, if you're making three, four $400,000 a year, there's a huge difference between these taxes. But for people of modest means, it, it's going to feel very similar. It's all like TurboTax calculates them in a consolidated way. Um, but so when we say people don't owe income tax— Right. They're still paying taxes. They're paying taxes. This is one of my biggest, just biggest pet peeves because I also work on state policies. Mm-hmm. So they're they're not only paying payroll taxes in the way you described, um, but but they're paying they're paying state and local taxes. They're paying property taxes as homeowners or as renters. They're paying tax I mean, at the federal level and at the state level, they're paying a tax every time they put gas into their car, right? They're paying um, they're they're paying sales taxes whenever they make purchases of of goods or services in their state. They're they're paying state income taxes. Right. Most state income taxes aren't as progressive as the federal code. So, so the idea that that anyone I'd be hard pressed to find a person in this country who's not paying a tax. Right. <laughs> so, so the refundable tax credit it lets you pay essentially less than zero income tax. Exactly. Thus offsetting some of this other tax liability. And because of the progressive structure of the income tax, if you're trying to help you know, people in poverty, people near poverty, it, it has to be it has refundable to be. or you don't help. And I don't, you know, I don't think about I don't think about it as cut, you know, cutting taxes as a as a tax cut. I mean, in theory, yes, on paper that's what it is. But again, I I think I think the real idea here is that the tax code has historically been and can be a very efficient tool mm-hmm. for for delivering the resources that you know families and people who are living kind of living on the brink you know need to kind of meet the high cost of living right it's it's more of that sort of the mechanism right it's, we're all doing our taxes every year anyway right so um, you know there's a high 
there there could be better, but there's um, you know a pretty high participation rate um, for those who are eligible for the earned income tax credit and child tax credit. And so I think that's another reason why all of these proposals make sense because they're building off of policies we've had place you know in place for. 40 years um, that are that are proven and we know are effective ways to to help. That's a great point because, you know, one thing that I remember hearing uh, around in, in the discourse when I think um, Senator Harris was talking about her version of this, but it applies to all of them. Someone's like, well, like, why are progressives talking about tax cuts? You know, we should be doing blah, 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 blah. And I think the point you were making there, right, that it's like, whether you call this a tax cut or not, on a conceptual level, right, it's all the same. It's all the same. Right. right. But the, this is an institutional mechanism. If you're going to have a program that gives people money, somebody has to do the giving of the money and somebody has to verify that they're eligible for the money. Right. The IRS already exists. Exactly. They're already doing that. So it's su- super efficient, super effective. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be. It's not It's not the only thing we should be doing, right? Right. We have deep structural problems. Right, right, right. Right? We need to be addressing those simultaneously. But I think this is a way I've heard people describe it as a shovel-ready, you know, shovel-ready way to, um, to help those who need the help the most, you know, immediately that have like immediate and lasting and lasting impacts. Right. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Okay, so let's 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 get into it. Let's get into some of these. What do we have on the table here? Well, when we wrote the report, we had five proposals on the table. I feel like there's a new proposal every day or a week, or we may have have even more. So we can start start with these five. 
So of the five proposals, I guess two of them, I would say, are working to sort of build off of the earned income tax credit. You know, are again created in the seventies. Um, it is a, a part of the t- a credit that was meant to really incentivize and reward work. Um, it does vary in family size. The current, you know, the current. So you get a little bit more of a credit for um, for having if you have more kids. Kind of recognizing the the higher cost of um, of providing providing for those for those children. So so two of them, you know, take that framework, build and build off of it, mm-hmm. right? The the cost of living living refund act um, that was introduced by Senator Sherrod Brown and Representative Rokana. Um, is is actually just a major expansion of the earned income mm-hmm. tax credit. So that so that's that's one. Um, the Working Families Tax Relief Act has both an expansion to the earned income tax credit, but also includes an expansion to the to the child tax credit. I think just to take a step back, I should yeah. say that all of these proposals, the, the, the things that they have in common is that they generally all um, give more money to more people. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them also, you know, I, I've said numerous times that these child tax credit and earned income tax credit are proven and effective, but there are some underlying flaws with both of them that, that frankly, the, the tax bill could have and should have corrected mm-hmm. or, or considered. Um, and so there are ways that those are addressed, which I can talk about. Yeah. Um, most of these proposals also really kind of expand the definition of work. Or think about um, including including more people um, into the into the existing credit who are currently you know currently left behind. So either students or caregivers. Um, some some include immigrants as are filing with with I ten. Um, one includes residents of Puerto Rico. So there's kind of a thinking about um, the the newest proposal from Representative Talib includes non working mm-hmm. non working poor. Um, so there's just kind of a thought about who who we're going to help and how we kind of expand on the definition of of, of work. Um, and then most of them also try to make the the current credits a little bit more I guess user friendly or accessible, okay. right? So there's kind of some common themes, right? So going back, um, there are you know, the Cost of Living Refund Act is really just a major expansion of the earned income tax credit. It pretty much doubles the the size of the the current credit, the current maximum credit. Um, that's around six thousand dollars. Would be around twelve thousand dollars on this proposal. So the way the way EHC works is, at, at first, when you earn very little. The EITC only gives you a little. Right. Then, as you as you get more, it gets bigger because it's trying to basically encourage you to work full time. Right. Right. And then and then it maxes out at like you are a full time low wage worker. And then as you start getting more prosperous, it phases back out again. Exactly. So exactly. It's, it's, so it's like a hill, and and cost of living refund act basically like makes it a. It makes it a bigger hill. Yes, right? exactly. It doesn't change. I mean, you're right. I think that's helpful for for people to understand that the current credit has a, I think what I'd call kind of a long phase in. You have to have earnings, right? So the credit's based on a percentage of earnings. Once you get to a certain amount of earnings, you, you've you've hit that max credit, right? You stay. It's like a it's like a hill with a plateau, sure. right? So you like <laughs> you stay. Hit the you hit the yeah. plateau. Um, you keep that maximum credit, and then it then it begins to to phase back phase back down. So you're absolutely right. The cost of delivering a refund act just takes that hill and makes it into a mountain. Right. It doesn't really change the way the EITC works. It doesn't really change. It doesn't change the phase in rate. It just really boosts the amount of the credit. And the other thing about the EITC that's a little curious. You you mentioned this before, but it's not a pure work subsidy because it's also scaled to the size of your 
family. Right. Right. So it's it's but it's not a pure family subsidy because it's scaled <laughs> to your working, right? So so the idea I mean, I guess if if you try to understand it philosophically, right, they understand that parents of children have more economic needs and that the government should probably do something to help you because the labor market doesn't care that you have extra right. children to feed. So, so the government needs to do something. But they didn't want to recreate the old uh, AFDC welfare situation where the government is um, giving low-income women money to not work. So they said, we are going to supplement your earnings and we will make the supplement bigger when you have more children but you still have to sort of work in the labor market to get the subsidy. Exactly. And the most recent expansions to the earned income tax credit really, really thought about how they, they used to be that the max credit was only available to married or to single parents with two kids, and they did an extra boost for the for the for the third kid. I think that you know all, all of the proposals here, the ones that are really addressing the EITC, that some of those fundamental flaws I was talking about. Uh, the the group that's really been left behind from recent expansions to the earned income tax credit are workers without children right. in the home, right? Their maximum credit is around $530 a year, and it's unavailable, um, you know, around $15,000, $16,000 of, of income. It's not – the EITC is is not really working for um, for, for those people. Um, they're also the only group who are – who could be further taxed into poverty. And so the Cost of Living Refund Act and the Working Families Tax Relief Act, while they have a significant sort of boost in the size of the credit for families with children – the boost for, for those without children is is significantly higher. It's, mm. it's still a lower credit amount, but right. in terms of like where we're going to prioritize and put our investment, um, the Working Families Tax Relief Act in, in particular puts more investment in workers, um, more of an increase to workers mm-hmm. without children. And some of that, I mean, is um, people who are childless for EITC purposes, in some cases actually do in fact have children. They're yes. just not the custodial parents. of Exactly. They're, they're essentially the fathers of single mothers. So uh, – it's not a gendered law, it's, but just in in practice, that's a part of the population. That right. We're that's about. why I think so. There's sort of my I've been training myself to say for the Israelis and the workers without <laughs> children in the home, which is such a mouthful, yes. and why we all wanted <laughs> to go back and say childless. But you're absolutely right. It's not not necessarily that they don't have a child. There's just not a child living in the home with them. Right. So so and and so a, a lot of the the sort of rhetoric and stuff you hear about this right is that um, is is focused on the idea that we've had. Uh, sort of less educated men dropping out of the workforce and lower uh, marriage rates and stuff in there and that and that this is a sort of a population that has been left out of American social policy previously. Right? Exactly. And so that's like a big focus. It is, a, it is a big focus. I think that's definitely, you know, one of the reasons why it is a, a priority, particularly in the Working Families Tax Relief Act. Okay. So that was cost of living refund and Working Families Tax Relief. Yes. Our Built around EITC expansions, um, cost of living is a little bit of a bigger program. It's a much bigger program, and that's because it takes the size of the credit, you know, like 
essentially doubles the size of the credit. And what is Working Families Tax Relief? Well, so the Working Families Tax Relief Act, it's really important because it has an additional component. It's the only only plan on the table that addresses both the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit in a a single proposal. So um, on the on the EITC front, you know, it just it does do a small boost. I believe it boosts the benefit by about twenty five percent for um, for workers with children. Again, does I think increases the credit for workers without children in the home by about six times. But it also um, it also expands the child tax credit. I see, um, which is what the American Family Act, yet a fourth, you know, sure. third plan, <laughs> is just about the child tax credit. Right. Um, so I, I've talked again, you know, about some some flaws with the current system or the, the current credits. But both of those, so the the child tax credit part of the Working Families Tax Relief Act and the American Families Act, first and foremost, they say if if you're a family with a child in this country, you should get the full amount of the child tax credit. Okay, because um, this is currently not a refundable tax credit. It's currently partially refundable. Partially. So the tax bill in 2017 increased the amount of the child tax credit from $1,000 to $2,000. But only $1,400 of that per child can be refundable. Okay. But wait, there's more. (laughs) Um, There's an earnings requirement. So you have to have earnings of at least $2,500 to get the credit, period. Okay. So any family who has less than that, right, or is not finding themselves working at any point in time, they don't get the credit at all. So, so people, no earnings, no credit. No earnings, no credit. A little or bit earning, of earnings, a little bit of credit. A little bit of credit. Because then there's also – so it's not only that it's partially refundable, there's also a, a, a phase-in based on your earnings of 15%. Okay. So what that means is that, again, even though we double the child tax credit – there are more than 26 million children in this country who were either partially or completely left behind. Okay. Many of them are children of color, mm-hmm. um, children living in rural areas, children of single parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so both the American Family Act and the Working Families Tax Relief Act start by saying we're going to make the credit fully refundable. We're going to remove their earnings requirement, and there's there's no phase in. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a credit design. To, to help children, mm-hmm. to deliver benefits to, to children for, you know, well-documented research that 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 says that um, giving money to children, particularly young children, could have lasting, you know, um, impacts on, right. on their um, life outcomes. Um, so, that, so they do that. The Working Families Tax Relief Act uh, also then, uh, well, both of them, I should say, also create an additional boost for young children, um, children okay. who are under six. Um, the American Families Act boost is a little bigger, right? It goes up to, I think, $3,600 versus $2,000 for the older kids. Um, and the Working Families Tax Relief Act is around $3,000 versus $3, Why do they do that? Are younger kids more expensive? <laughs> They're a lot more expensive. Do you have younger kids? I, mean, I, do, I, have, a, I have a four-year-old, so I'm, yes. I'm looking forward to this oh, decline yes. in expenses. Oh, I, yes. I feel like I'm looking at summer camps. And <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't, I've, got a, I've got a three and a seven-year-old, so I can <laughs> tell summer more? camps are awesome. <laughs> Starting summer camp today. Um Still expensive. <laughs> Childcare is expensive. I, I am. It, it's very expensive. So yes, there's there's just a higher cost to taking care of um, of younger children. Yeah, so not joking. This is because we have public schools for older yeah. children. Yeah, I mean that's a huge that's a huge part of it. I mean, day, child care in this country. Like I, I'm living this right now. There's like a mini crisis with my my younger child's um, child care situation right no, it's now, a where it's you know it's. It's expensive. It is a major share of a family's um, income, and often it's younger people who aren't at their kind of highest earning yep. potentials yet. Yep. 
And on the flip side, we're not paying our child care workers very yeah. much at all. Plus, little little kids need like weird equipment. They and... need weird equipment. They need diapers, right? They need there's there's all sorts of reasons. And I mean, more I mean, I think most importantly here is that there's a growing body of research that that says that you know making investments and in, and in young children mm-hmm. again will you know not only sort of reduce poverty today but will have you know lasting lasting impact on on their their potential right. okay so this is you know it, it's interesting because some of this stuff, I think, can sound, you know, can sound dull to people. Refundable, not refundable, <laughs> tax credit, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But it, there's, like, a real philosophical revolution included in this, right? That if you go back to 1993, 1994, welfare reform, um, well, I guess that was later, 95, um, you know, the Clinton administration and sort of broadly speaking, the Democratic Party decides in the mid-90s that giving cash assistance to people who aren't working is not politically viable. And so there can be Medicaid benefits um, without work requirements. And, and we're, you know, there's a big fight about that happening now. Um, and there can be cash assistance in the form of EITC or these weird phase-in schedules. <laughs> um but that welfare, they decided, like didn't work because you had cash assistance to non-working families, right? And the philosophy of the expanded child tax credit is to say, A, that like substantively it didn't work to like not help the poorest people. And then secondarily that if you create a program – because the child tax credit, um, it phases out mm-hmm. at a certain point. But it's not it's not a super – Sharp phase out. So not anymore. Right. <laughs> not anymore. Yeah. So 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 middle class families benefit from a child mm-hmm. tax credit. And the idea is that by making it fully refundable, you will now have a program that the lowest income families with children benefit from, but that also benefits middle income families. And you would say, you know, like we're all in it together, right? Well, we're all struggling with the difficulties of having children, and here's a program to help. So Lots of lots of thoughts for that. <laughs> I mean, one is that the the child tax credit is our is our largest single expenditure, sort of direct federal expenditure, sort mm-hmm. of directly at aimed, aimed at child. Yet a a third a third of children are again right. partially or completely left behind. So that's nonsensical. the The tax bill, the 2017 tax bill, you know, it used to be that the child tax credit um, became unavailable to to married couples starting at 150 thousand. Mm-hmm. Now that's 500 thousand yeah. dollars. So to put it in perspective, when they were kind of thinking about these changes to the tax child tax credit. They did more to help families between one hundred and fifty and five hundred thousand dollars right. <laughs> than they did to help the lowest income families. And again, we're not. I mean, I think the the work. I mean, there is a there is a part of this, a part of this change that's going to help non working families. You know, a cash benefit. But but it, when you know, it, I'm talking about when I say partially unavailable, like it. It's around forty. If you're a married couple with two kids, you're not getting the full child tax credit until you earn upwards of forty-two thousand dollars. Okay, so we're talking so like even, going so, up into more moderate, you know, close yeah, to yeah, middle yeah, income yeah, yeah. that you're not getting the full value of the the credit. So low wage workers even are not getting the full exactly. Value of the even credit, low wage workers even aren't the even full when credit. they're working full time exactly. And I think there's a you know I think there is a fundamental question to ask about whether or not if this is if this is a a policy tool that's been created to help children. Mm-hmm. It it's not about work, right? Sure. It's not about incentivizing work. And the only way to help children is to make it available to all children. Right. right. Okay. So so Working Families Tax Relief Act 
which combines EITC and child tax credit mm-hmm. proposals, and American Family Act, which is just child tax credit. Mm-hmm. Um, those are similar in They're their They're similar cost. in size and cost. Mm-hmm. So I gather American Family Act's child tax credit enhancement is much more generous. It it is. It's much it's much more generous. Um, it's it it actually takes that the credit for the older children from two thousand to three thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars, and then for the young kids is thirty six hundred dollars. So the credit size um, is bigger. Both of them um, make some changes to how the current phase out works, um, but the Working Families Tax Relief Act actually does it in a way that that takes away the child tax credit from from some upper income families right, as well. Right, 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 right. So that. Three plans, two sort of major tax Mm -hmm. issues. Um, Then what's going on with these other ones? Well, then we have— We're creating new (laughs) credits. The new—well, new and maybe revamped credits. I'm not—I'm still trying to figure out exactly how— I sort of feel like you can tell, like, these plans were written by people who are running for president. So they they have to have more new stuff in them. Yeah. Well, so so let's talk about those. So it's the LIFT Act, which was proposed by Senator Harris, and the RISE credit proposed by Senator Booker. Yes, both presidential candidates. The difference between them— I think that the main difference between them is that the LIFT Act is designed to be a supplement to the current EITC, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't change anything about the EITC. It doesn't change anything about the child tax credit. It is a brand new credit that you would get on top of that. Mm -hmm. Whereas the RISE credit is more of a reimagining or a rethinking of Mm -hmm. the EITC. Yet they do work really similarly. But I think that's important to note that even though they're at similar cost, the benefits, particularly again for particularly for families with children, tend to be a little bigger under the LIFT Act because you're not you're you're building on top of uh-huh. the the current the current credits. So you were talking um, earlier about the kind of the family size issue right. with the EITC. Um, one of the the main sort of features these two credits um, share is that they sort of divorce the EITC or divorce the credit from from family size. Okay, so. For the the simplest way to think about it, the LIFT Act is three thousand dollars per person, like per worker, right? Okay. Um, so if you're single, three thousand. If you're married, couple six thousand um, dollars. And the and the rise credit is four thousand dollars per per worker. Both of them have um, they they don't have that same kind of slow gradual phase in as the mm-hmm. earned in, earned income tax credit. There's a hundred percent phase in. So you earn for with the LIFT Act, you get a dollar credit for every dollar of earnings up to three thousand dollars. Okay. Then you keep that three thousand. If you're a single worker, you keep that three thousand dollars for a really long time. Okay. Um, and then it starts to phase out um, at around thirty thousand dollars, between thirty and fifty thousand dollars of income. So that's like a pretty straight, like it's a it's a wage subsidy for middle to low income working people. Exactly. The price tag on this one is much higher than a lot of the others. So like why? What what's the what what's the what's the point of this? Like who who does it help? Well, I mean the price tag is the price tag is a lot higher because again as I if you're if taking a, a single worker 
anyone earning between $3,000 and $30,000 is getting a Mm -hmm. $3,000 credit. That's a lot of people who are giving $3,000 to. And then it's a pretty gradual, you know, gradual phase out with for – for for Mary and that's single workers without children. It does do a little bit more for for there's a bit of a boost in there for single workers with children. Um and then for married couples, it phases out between um between sixty and a hundred thousand dollars. So it's it's a prime example of what I was saying before about we're giving more money to more people. We're bringing right. a lot more people into the fold. Um and people are keeping that sort of max credit for a much um, you know, much longer, a much longer time. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, in, in context, right, if, if you look at your 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 chart here, right, if you look at people who are um, in the sort of middle 20% and the fourth 20%, so that's, you know, solidly middle class to, mm-hmm. to, to upper middle class people, that's a, a $108 billion worth of benefits there, right? So that's like bigger in scale than the entire American family Exactly. Act. Exactly. And then there's and it's more generous to the lower income households than that, right? Because but, it's spending so much more. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They are. I mean, so I'd say I, I'm not even sure if I said this earlier, but you know, all of these proposals are much, much more targeted to the bottom sixty percent, you know, households under seventy thousand dollars than the the tax bill in two thousand seventeen. Um, you know, but but it is it is the case that um you know that the the Lyft Act and the Rise Credit are are a little bit less targeted. And that's only because they 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 do reach a little bit higher into right. the into the middle class. I think part of that is some recognition that there are, you know, it that there's some families who maybe aren't feeling immediate economic insecurity, but are sort of living on the brink. And, sure. um, you know, I I'd say I have some appreciation for the fact that we're at least you know we're stopping these proposals at more of ninety, a hundred thousand dollars. We're not trying to pretend that two hundred fifty thousand dollars is middle class in this country anymore. So. Um, but I, but I think again, the reason why the reason why they cost more is just that they're they're going much further up the, the income spectrum, giving people some similar amounts of benefit. Right. And there's, you know, I mean, people have different thoughts about the the politics of this, right? I mean, there's like one school of thought that says, well, if you make it more targeted, you can help the neediest people, and the total price tag is smaller, so that'll be easier. Then there's another that no, if you let the price tag get bigger, you can afford a less targeted program, so you can say more people benefit and that makes the politics easier and I you know I don't know it's well, it's, it's it's outside the scope of this episode I, I mean I think the other potential political appeal of these is that they're just a lot easier to understand it's uh-huh. a lot easier to understand I mean you can say with certainty if you're a, a married couple in this country you know earning sixty thousand dollars or less you're gonna get a six thousand dollar credit or you're gonna get an eight thousand mm-hmm. dollar credit right where you it's just it's hard to do that yeah. with the Ev- EITC. everybody who's it working is getting an extra four thousand dollars exactly. in their pockets exactly and that's what Paul Ryan promised you but I'm right but we're actually gonna <laughs> right <yes. laughs> um okay so so rise credit replaces EITC it with replaces this? the EITC so does that so does rise have a family size? It does not to... have a family size element. Okay. Uh, well, okay, let me be clear. It doesn't have, on the surface, it doesn't have a family size element. It does have, um, and we included in our analysis of the proposal, I'm not even sure what they're calling it, but a bit of a boost to single parents with um, with two or more kids because of the way it's designed and because it's replacing the EITC. 
Um, there are some, depending on where you'd be in the current EITC along that sort of, you know, plateau and phase in and phase out, the current EITC could be a little bit of a larger credit for, for single parents with two or more kids. And they recognize that they, they don't want to do anything to take away. And in fact, they want to make sure that they get a little something extra. So mm-hmm. there is this sort of child, um, you know, this kind of boost built built in. But it's very much under the scenes. It's not, it's, that's a lot harder to make that easy talking point, sure. right? So. so they're trying to restructure it, but also make sure that nobody loses out. So there's a complicated. Right. And right, of course, one way to make sure no one loses out would also just be to do even more, right? Uh-huh. $5,000, $6,000 per person. But, um, but cost, you know, cost is consideration. I guess. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, okay. it's still less than in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act by, what, $75, um, $75 billion, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, <laughs> that is a good question, right? It's like, what what is the, you know, does it, does it make sense to sort of limit the fiscal horizons in this kind of way? I mean, Republicans had their own, you know, th- there was this kind of weird process in the Senate where they were deciding how much were they going to add to the deficit before deciding to pretend that it wasn't going right, to the deficit. Exactly. And they came up with this number, $1.5 trillion over 10 years or, or something, and they ran with it. Um, and I never really understood. It was like something to do with Bob Corker. I think that was an amount he wanted. Then I think CBO came back later and told him, oh, no, it's actually $1.9 trillion when they rescored the pill. But, yeah, so they decided it was fine. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, look, I I, I think I, I really sort of just take objection to the idea that that only progressive proposals, like only proposals that act, that, that would actually help the vast majority of, of people and families in this country are the ones that have to be have to be paid for, uh-huh. right? Um, I'm not saying that they shouldn't, and there are all sorts of ways. There's all sorts of money. We could talk about all sorts of ways that we could raise revenue to offset these proposals, rolling back parts of the the more expensive and less targeted parts of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act would be, you know, a good place, a good place to start. But, you know, at the end of the day, the Republicans and the Trump administration passed this $1.5, $1.9 trillion tax bill that that this deficit financed, right. right? And and now you know with the claims that it was going to you know help the economy, help workers. Now that it's not doing that, surprise, surprise, it all would have you know could have predicted they're call, you know calling for cuts and in investments in the programs that actually help low and water income um, families. Um, so yeah, I mean, could we? We could go bigger and better, and there's all sorts of wonderful ideas that that my organization and others have put out to to help make our tax code more progressive and and raise more revenue. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard, but with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. 
That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. What helps the most? Like, does does Lyft just deliver the most help because it has the highest price tag, ultimately? I So, so I would say— to, I think- to people who are really in, in need, because <laughs> some of this does come from, like, spreading the money around to, to more affluent households. Um, but if we're concerned about, like, you know, poverty, child poverty, I don't know, good yeah. good headline stats. Yeah. Like, I mean, it is a lot about the, like, again, very similar kind of overarching goals, kind of moving the same direction, but each are kind of tackling different, different problems, different targets. Mm-hmm. It's a hard question to answer only because they do vary so much in size. Mm-hmm. I mean, they all make very di- different decisions about how much they're going to invest. If you took something, if you took the Working Families Tax Relief Act, which mm-hmm. is roughly a third of the cost of the 2017 tax bill, mm-hmm. you, know, you can look, it's highly targeted. The, sure. the the largest amount of the benefit is going to the, the poorest 20% um, of households in the country. If you took that and scaled that up to reach the cost of the uh-huh. same, you know, same investment as Tax Cuts and Jobs Act or the Lyft or the RISE credit, mm-hmm. it would by far be the best um, proposal. I think it's sort of combating... Um, poverty and deep poverty. I think so. It's the most efficient. I think, of these proposals. I think it's like, the most efficient. I think that's a good way to say it. If if your concern really is child poverty, and I think it's a little bit masked in these numbers because these are aggregates, and you're not you know sure. just looking at sort of just the families with children. But if your concern really is child poverty and particularly deep poverty, I think the American Family Act is a really super efficient efficient way to do it. I'd also say that you know you don't. It may be that it's some combination of these proposals or ideas from these proposals, you know, would would work well together. Mm-hmm. If we're going to divorce the the EITC from from family size, then I think the, I think doing that in combination with, at the minimum, fixing those problems with the child tax credit, making the child tax credit actually work for all children in this mm-hmm. country, would would make a lot of sense. Right. So so that would be right. So that would be like you would take Booker's idea, rise, and then just separately do at least some child tax credit. At least some, right, exactly. Type enhancements here. Exactly. Right. So Working Families Tax Relief Act, this was the Sherrod Brown proposal, right? Sherrod, Sherrod Brown and um, I believe Michael um, Michael Bennett. Well, there's lots of people on it, but, sure. but yes, yes. So we're saying this is the most most efficient, like, dollars of, of work done. They, they raises taxes on the richest 20%. Yeah, by just um, a little so bit, taking like away a, the child tax credit, yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> if you felt like the real issue was a fiscal constraint, right? Like you, you wanted to do something, but it it had to be paid for or somebody was giving you a hard time about the deficit, like might be the, the right way to go. Um, but I think, well, I don't know. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't— it's, it's not obvious to me that that really should be the concern. No, it's not It's. it's it's not obvious. I think that um, I mean it certainly looks moderated, right? Compared to yes. <laughs> compared to some of the other proposals. So again, I think the the working families. I mean, working families tax, tax relief act is actually the second of the proposals that that Senator Brown has put on mm-hmm. the table. Right? He he's clearly a champion of working families and children. Um, you know, in, in loves our, the EITC in our country, he loves loves the EITC. Really, really believes in it. I think really sees it again as that sort of that quick acting way to right. um, to help those who who most need help. Um, you know, paying for the high inco- high cost of living, um, but so so he obviously believes in both. I think the working families tax relief really act, exactly as you described it, super efficient, and it does sort of it, it addresses the dual problem of 
doing more to help children, particularly those children in poverty and deep poverty, and then helping you know helping those workers who don't who don't have children children in the home. I think um, you know if you've already said this, you you could take this idea and comp- continue to sort of scale it you know scale it up, mm-hmm. right? We wouldn't have to limit ourselves that we would just start it you know start here. It would give us the framework to continue to do do more, which is actually what I love about all of these proposals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're taking these the existing. They're working within the existing framework. I mean, the Rise and Lift Act. Yes, they're kind of something new, but they're still they're still thinking about how to use the tax code, mm-hmm. right? As as this sort of this this tool, and and there you can you can design them in different ways, and you can always you can always scale them up. You can bring more people into the fold, um, but. You know that I mean that is that's one reason why I really don't want to say that there's right. one that I like better than the other. I feel like having having now gone through this conversation, right? That if you abstract away from these five specific bills, what you actually see is a set of different um, specific ideas, mm-hmm. right? And one is make the EIGC bigger. Right. One is make the child tax credit fully refundable. Um, one is extend EIGC coverage to more people. Right. And then one is change the level of the child tax credit. Right. And those are like different levers. They're different levers. That you can push in different kinds of Exactly. The way I've sort of thought about it is that they all kind of like they're turning some dials and some of them are adding some new levers as well. Right. 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 And then adding more people both by sort of expanding up the income ladder. But, you know, again, many of these proposals um, take in consideration that that students and those who are um, staying at home to, Mm -hmm. to care for their young children or their older parents. Um, that that should be recognized as mm. as work. Um, the lift, um, Senator Harris's lift act um, would would make the credit available to um, to immigrants who file taxes with a, with an I ten. That that's something that does not currently um, they're currently not um, eligible for the EITC despite working mm-hmm. um, in this be, being workers in this country. And the again the the one that's not on here that I think I briefly mentioned the new, the new Lift Plus Act Lift right plus. the Lift Plus from Representative Talib would would also sort of get at the the non working non working right. poor kind of remove this it's, it's still it's not universal right it would still have a phase out but it would remove their earnings requirement altogether and so I think one last note for for fans of Senate procedure is that you know all of these ideas precisely because they are a little bit like in the weeds of weird tax code stuff this is all like budget reconciliation friendly kinds of proposals. So if you want to keep your your eyes on um, possible policy changes that like might realistically occur in the short term, I think it's actually really important to pay attention to this kind of stuff because oh, yeah. these, these these proposals are sort of designed to be legislated on some something something along these lines could really happen you know oh, sit absolutely. down in committee work it out um you know put it in your in your reconciliation package and and it's kind of a away we go well it's in it's in the house man i just read this morning again that representative nil is considering us part of the extenders package um doing doing some improvements to both the EITC and the child tax credit paid for by hiking the corporate tax um rate by a percentage point so right there you go so there you go it wouldn't cover any of these five, but I think it would definitely be enough to do more by workers without children in a home and fix those, like make the child tax credit work for, for right. all the and kids. And it's pulling from the same universe. It's pulling from the same universe. So, and, so yeah. yeah. So this is like this this is where where action a, a lot of action is happening. On, oh, on absolutely. These yeah. Okay, so so before I before I let you go, um, is there what 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 should I have asked you? What's the what did I miss? 
I, I don't think he missed anything. I mean, there are lots of things I could talk a lot more about, but <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I mean, as someone who also and where my roots are in state policy, I probably could ever should have said that there's like momentum for these kinds of ideas in the states too. But people who are interested in this universe of ideas, like this could be applied by state governments. Oh. And and to an extent is already, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, well, well, for starters, if any of these were enacted completely or in some partial way, the ones that are sort of tied to the current earned income tax credit, any state with an earned income tax credit could could potentially right. see a boost in their earned income tax credit. But yeah, we have, you know, we're seeing um, Governor Newsom in California, for example, um, has included um, a, a young child boost mm-hmm. um, and and an additional credit for recognizing caregiving as, as work. And his budget proposal is sort of being worked through the House and the Senate right now. I'm not quite sure how what what the conclusion there will be. Um, there's a similar proposal in Maine that really thinks mm. about how we expand um, expand these credits. You know, one thing I just realized I didn't say at all in this whole conversation is that um, all of the proposals with the EITC and the and the, the lift and the rise credit also bring the age down. Like, also oh, okay. actually goes to young, you know, younger adults. Um, so it's not so the way of the way of thinking about the boost for workers with without kids isn't just about the income eligibility or the credit amount. You have to be 25 or older currently to get the EITC. So oh, we really? say if you're working and you're 18 or 21 in one case, you get the credit as well. And that's a proposal we've been, you know, the state of Maryland that has an earned income tax credit actually last year said we're going to make it available to to 18 and 24-year-olds. So what's the what's the rationale for the, the 25 exclusion? Is the idea that, like, they don't want, like— a college student with a part-time job getting? I don't really understand the rationale other than that I think probably at the time it was created was this sort of the the thought policymaker thought was that, right, these are all college students or they're people living at home or they're still, you know, still dependents, which just is not the reality right. of of the way things think, things work. Well, and also, I mean, I mean, if you're a dependent. You wouldn't get you, it. You'd right. Be, right. Right. So right. in a technical legal sense, right, like if you are like 20 and a full-time college student and you have, you know, prosperous parents who are paying your bills, like they claim you right. as a dependent. Exactly. They, so are, they are allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. It, that there's tax benefits to them for doing that. But then you're their dependent, and you can't get these benefits. Exactly, and you wouldn't get them in these other proposals right. too. It's really just saying if you're, but if you're 20 years old and your parents aren't prosperous, and you're you're working, you're going to college part time, or you're not even in school, right? And um, also, like we, lots yeah. of people don't go to college, right? A lot of people don't go to college at all, right? So, so to so say, just, okay, yeah. you graduated high school, yeah. you're working, and now. Good luck for the next seven years. Exactly, right. And of course, then we only give you the $530 as it is. But um, yeah, so that's another important that I sort of left out of the conversation is that we think about. And then on the other end, some of the proposals also say, well, why are we stopping this at the age of 65? Mm -hmm. There are plenty of older adults who are still working um, and who should get get some benefit as well. So some of the proposals also sort of raise the raise the the age limit at the top. Yeah. And if I was, you know, a dynamic scoring enthusiast, um, you know, I, <laughs> I, I would say that, you know, if you're trying to think about what's the actual sort of like social cost of these kind of things, that the fact that at least many of these proposals, you know, they reward people, right? Younger people, older people, particularly with those income phase outs or people without custodial children to be in the formal Labor market, right. right? I mean, that was the original idea. That was of the original the idea, and, and research has said that is the case. Yeah, and building on it, you know, it should should work, right? Right, absolutely. 
All right. That was Meg Weehy, Deputy Director of the Institute for Taxation Economic Policy. Uh, thanks so much for a really great, really excellent conversation. Uh, you know, if you're listening to this, you'll know that sort of lurking in the background of, of a lot of this was the question of the budget deficit. I think if you go back a, a couple weeks, you look at my interview with Carl Smith about monetary policy and the macroeconomy, uh, that sort of helps you give an understanding of at least how I'm thinking about that question and why we probably shouldn't worry too much about the budgetary cost of some of these ideas if they deliver help to people who are really in need. Um, I, I hope you enjoy, and the weeds will return on Tuesday. Tuesday.